Hello out there, and welcome again to the podcast Expanding Eyes, where we have been talking about Homer's Odyssey, one of the works of literature in the entire span of literature that I enjoy talking about the most. And I hope the reasons for that will come through as we move along and as you listen. And once again, thank you for being my listening audience. I so much appreciate it and value it. We have been talking about the first four books of the Odyssey before we even meet our hero, Odysseus. The first four books are known sometimes by scholars as the Telemachia because they are solely concerned with the son of Odysseus, Telemachus. We don't even meet Odysseus until book five. This is one of many unique things about the Odyssey. It is intricately organized, and there are several more or less self-contained units like the Telemachia and the so-called wanderings of books nine through 12. And it's unique also in having this generational double plot. It's not as if Telemachus disappears and his story is sidelined even after we meet Odysseus, at least more than temporarily. We are clearly intended to have both plots in mind at once, both characters in mind at once, and to compare father and son. We'll see where that goes. In this opening, however, books one through four, Athena, the goddess Athena, has come down, disguised herself as not one, but two old men in a row, mentees and then later mentor, to appear to Telemachus on the island of Ithaca, the home island of Odysseus, to tell him, you are a boy no longer. You have been 20 years without a father. For the last several years, 108 young men of your age, the suitors, have been running riot here, unopposed, all hoping to marry your mother on the presumption, the large presumption, that Odysseus is never going to come back home, and therefore they will inherit wealth and power by marrying the, the widowed queen. But you need to do something about this. That's what a man does. And Mentor, who, whose name has become a word in the English language, uh, meaning exactly someone who guides a beginning or younger person, Mentor advises, do two things. First, call an assembly and tell the suitors to leave, which Telemachus does in book two. And then go, if not to find your father, at least find news of your father. And I recommend you start with two men, Nestor and Menelaus. And that is exactly what Telemachus will do in book three, where we left him last time. He went to Pylos, the city of Nestor, and he will go on in book four to Lacedaemon, uh, later known as Sparta, where he will meet Menelaus and, ahem, Helen, reunited with her husband Menelaus, 
After causing an entire 10-year war by running away with the Trojan Paris. Very interesting. But, so far, we have left Telemachus back at Pylos. And by the way, both of these cities were real Bronze Age cities. They have been excavated. Whether there were ever any characters of the sort that we see in the Iliad and Odyssey, we have no idea, let alone whether the storyline is based on anything. But the cities were real, and Pylos was a city on the coast of mainland Greece, just down the way from the island of Ithaca, so there, it is a short sail on the part of Telemachus and his crew. And they land in Book 3 at Pylos and are welcomed and given hospitality by Nestor, although the lead is taken by Nestor's son, the young prince Pisistratus, who forms eventually a kind of older brother relationship with Telemachus. I always urge students when I teach the Odyssey, and I said this last time, but to remind us, because here it is definitely pertinent once again, whenever there is no action, pay attention in the Odyssey instead to a different type of action, social interaction. Yet another way in which the Odyssey is unique is that at times, many times, it seems less like a traditional heroic epic and more like what a later age might call a comedy of social manners. And when Telemachus is concerned, that's definitely true because, yes, he needs to become a man. And that means, first and foremost, he needs to become a warrior. He will do that. He will acquit himself well. No sense, a spoiler alert sense. This is one of the most traditional of Western stories. He will acquit himself well at the end in the battle against the suitors as a young untried warrior. But then as now, and this is the fun of it, he needs to learn that there are a lot more things to becoming a man than being able to fight and throw your weight around. That's exactly the contrast with his peers, the suitors, because that's the only thing they know is to throw their weight around and bully people and so forth and so on. Telemachus needs to learn there are far more things to learn and a lot of them have to do with social interaction, knowing what to say and how to act in different situations. Telemachus has grown up in the boonies. Ithaca is the farthest flung island away from Troy. Odysseus came the furthest distance and it is a relatively poor place. Odysseus is not a poor man, but he brought the fewest ships to the Trojan War. It explicitly says so. Agamemnon brought the most, and that was one way in which you measured someone's status was, or at least their wealth, by the number of ships they could put together for one of these wars. And Odysseus brought the fewest. And Telemachus has also grown up 
isolated because of an absent father. He's never been off the island. He's been brought up by a single mom and an aged female nurse. They did a wonderful job, but he has much to learn, and he's going to learn it by being exposed to all of this. Mentor Athena is very wisely being a mentor and showing him some of these social interactions. One of them occurs as Nestor's son, Pisistratus, comes up to the group that have just landed from the ship. Telemachus is all nervous. He says to Mentor, I don't know what to say. I'm all scared about this. I, I worry about saying the right thing. Mentor reassures him he'll do fine. Pisistratus walks up and gives Telemachus one lesson implicitly. None of this is preached. It's all role-modeled and exampled. And we're never told that Telemachus picks up on all of this. But he's a smart young guy, and he's got his eyes open, and he will. He is learning, first of all, what a well-run kingdom is like. They are sacrificing to the god Poseidon. They are offered hospitality, even though they come unexpectedly as strangers. And when Pisistratus walks up and invites them to take part in the sacrifice, he first gives the cup of the sacrifice to Mentor, explicitly saying, but I give this to you because you are the elder. And this is not something that critics are plastering onto the text like little morals. It's there. It's clearly intended by the author. It says explicitly, Athena liked his manners. The young man knows to give deference to the elders. And that's another thing that Telemachus has no idea about these things. He's never been out of the hometown before. The problem with the stay with Nestor is that Nestor doesn't really know what happened to Odysseus. Therefore, they're going to have to go on to Menelaus. He is sure that the gods always loved Odysseus and that Odysseus must still be alive. But nevertheless, he doesn't really know. So on they go, in book four, the last book of the Telemachia, on they go to Lacedaemon, later known as Sparta, by chariot, because this is an inland place, and therefore they leave the ship anchored at Pylos and go just by Sistrasus and Telemachus, and they arrive in book four at Lacedaemon, where in a clear parallel there is also a ceremony going on parallel to the ceremony in book three at Pylos. A rather different ceremony, though, and one to give us background information that's kind of fascinating if you have a sharp eye, and a little look of our own. We, we need some mentoring at the social manners of that time, just as much as Telemachus did. When they arrive at Lacedaemon, 
they find another ceremony going on, a double wedding feast. The, the interesting wedding party is the daughter of Menelaus and Helen named Hermione, who is going to be sent off to marry the son of Achilles. Well, well, where did he come from? Some of these stories are rather inconsistent and you have to compare sources. We are stunned to learn this if all we know is the Iliad because there is certainly no mention of Achilles having a son in the Iliad. The son's name, by the way, for some reason, some of the characters in the Homeric epics have two names. I've never really known why. I'm not sure whether anybody does or not. But the commonest name of Achilles' son is Neoptolemus, though he is also known sometimes as Pyrrhus. And he's going to be marrying the daughter, the single daughter, of Menelaus and Helen. However, uh, they're economizing, apparently, by having a double ceremony, and Menelaus is marrying off his son by a slave woman. Okay, social manners, lesson number one here. This was not a middle-class monogamous culture, and at many points in ancient literature and in the Old Testament, for that matter, we have to pause a moment and realize that the certain types of social ideals and monogamous marriage is one of them really came into Western culture in the 18th century with the rise of the middle class. Before that, not so much. And definitely true also in the Old Testament. There could be slaves, there could be concubines, there could be in the Iliad war prizes. If a city falls, all of the booty is divided up and unfortunately to say that included the women of the city who were bestowed as war prizes to some of the victorious warriors. And you could bring back your war prizes uh, or you could have something to do with your slaves within the domestic household if your wife was not strong-willed enough to prevent it. So you get lots of social manners plots about the way this would go differently in different households. But at any rate, Menelaus is not being criticized here. This was simply a custom of the time. He's had a son by a slave. It's accepted. It's not one of the marks that could be marked against him in their culture terms. And he's even marrying him off along with their own actual daughter. They are welcomed in, Telemachus and Mentor. And the first thing is another instance of recognition when Helen walks into the room she looks at Telemachus. No one has told her anything. She has not been there when they arrived. And the first thing she says is, never have I seen so great a likeness. This boy must be the son of Odysseus, which to an insecure young man 
worried about this legacy of an absent, almost legendary father is a huge thing. It's one little piece of dialogue, but so pregnant with meaning for Kim. He has a lot of other things he's going to be learning within this sojourn. They welcome them in, and Telemachus wanders around the palace of Menelaus and Helen before dinner. And we have to realize, and we will learn why this is the case eventually, all of the Trojan War veterans were relatively wealthy, Odysseus the least, but still, they're all members of the aristocracy, all well-to-do. But Menelaus is filthy rich by our standards, or by our way of speaking. He is beyond them all, and we learn that he has picked up some extra wealth, and apparently a good deal of it, in a seven-year stay in Egypt, which will be explained soon. So, Telemachus, who's never been out of the small-town atmosphere of Ithaca, is wandering around in a kind of super-mansion of the super-rich, of not just the 1%, but the point one of the 1%, and he is utterly dumbfounded. And it's played for comedy. There is so much humor, often genial, sometimes satiric humor, but often genial humor in the Odyssey. And here, gently at the expense of Telemachus, who blurts out to Mentor a little too loudly so that he makes a social blunder of a small sort. Menelaus overhears it. Harmless, but funny. And he blurts out, my friend, can you believe your eyes? Bronze, gold, amber, silver, ivory. This is the way the court of Zeus must be inside upon Olympus. What a wonder. And Menelaus walks up and genially says, oh, young friend, no mortal man can vie with Zeus. But as for men, it may well be that few have more than I, and I'm modest too. So yeah, you know, he's, we gently get the idea that Telemachus has been a little bit of a naive country guy, but he's inadvertently buttered up Menelaus who likes to hear the compliment. And he says, I brought this home from Egypt. Why Egypt? Because he was stranded there with Helen. We're getting to this business of the reunion of Menelaus and Helen after the war at the dinner. But for right now, we'll just say he and Helen were stranded for seven years out of the ten that it has been since the end of the war. Yet again, a god was offended and there was no wind. So that was the bad news, but the good news was that they spent the time there somehow or other acquiring a good deal of wealth. And Helen has also acquired a few other little tricks that are almost quasi-magical, and we're going to talk about that too. But this will come out at the dinner, 
and they do have dinner. It's a dinner party in the mansion. And yet another thing that Telemachus will need to learn is about gender relations, especially in marriage. His father has been absent. He knows nothing of all of this. And once again, it's not going to be spelled out for him. He's going to have to be sharp-eyed and figure it out because nothing is said. What happens during the dinner is, yes, eventually Menelaus does know. He learned in Egypt where Odysseus is, and he will tell him, but that's at the very end. Before that, during the dinner, Helen and then Menelaus trade stories about Odysseus that go back to the period of the war before Troy fell. On the surface, it is simply, well, I'll tell you about where your dad is in a little bit, but let us give us some, give you some memories of your father. Oh, what a guy he was. Helen tells a story, and then Menelaus tells a story. But what Telemachus needs to learn is that married couples have a way of communicating under the surface, especially long married couples. He will learn this all over again with his mother and father when they are reunited. And he is a little bit dumbfounded at that point also. Here, Helen and Menelaus seem to be telling stories of Odysseus, but we begin to realize, okay, why these stories? There is a subtext to each of them. Helen tells a story of Odysseus disguising himself as an old beggar and sneaking into the walls of Troy on a spying expedition. And she says she recognized him. He got away with it, but only because I did not blow him in. I could have, she says, uh, but I didn't because I had come round long before to dreams of sailing home, and I repented the mad day Aphrodite drew me away from my dear fatherland, forsaking all, child, bridal bed, and husband, a man without defect in form or mind. It's a totally self-interested story on its underside. You know, I may have looked like this betrayer that caused the entire Trojan War, but hey, I repented that, and you know, I don't know what could have gotten into me other than Aphrodite, to leave this child, this man without defect in form and mind, you know, this compliment to her husband across the table. We have been asking ourselves, of course, very naturally, did they patch this up? You know, they've been back together again for 10 years. What does that mean? Did they come to terms with it? Has Menelaus forgiven her? She claims to be contrite about this. It would, in a way, be kind of moving if 
that kind of growth and reconciliation had taken place, do we have any clues? Well, Menelaus' response to this is one line, an excellent tale, my dear, and most becoming. If you direct the movie version of the Odyssey, be sure to have the actor speaking that line say it in a way that is dripping with sophisticated sarcasm. Yeah, right. He doesn't say that. These two will not say anything overtly against each other, but married couples have ways of communicating, and if they want, if they're not getting along, they have ways of sticking pins into each other without letting it show on the surface. At least people as well brought up and sophisticated as Menelaus and Helen. Screaming matches at the dinner table between husband and wife, that's for the lower class. That's vulgar. You would never do that. You always present a harmonious surface. This is true of the elite to this day. The rich always have a persona, a mask to keep up, and you never air the family dirty laundry. We could speak of the royal family of England uh, in many ways about this, and the fury if someone breaks cover and tells stories that indicate how many closets are in how many skeletons of the rich. It is quite clear by the end of book four that that's the case here. These two have perhaps a marriage of convenience, but they are still sticking pins into each other. Without ever saying so, she tells a story that is very self-serving. He gives that one dry reply and then goes on to tell his story. And it is one of the very few moments where we actually, in Homer, see at least a quick flash of the end of the war. Because he talks about being inside the Trojan horse, the great hollow wooden horse in which the Greek warriors hid so that the Trojans would take the horse inside the walls and the Greeks would come out and conquer them. They are in the horse trying not to sneeze, and out comes Helen. And not only Helen, but another guy. Paris is dead by this time, but another man, Diophobos. That handsome man, as Menelaus calls him, came with you. And you walked around this horse, and you called the names of the warriors making your voice sound like their wives. And what he does not add is, so they would betray themselves if there's anybody hiding in there. Now on the level of some sort of logical plot, what sense does this make? Are the Greek warriors gonna be so stupid? They're in the middle of Troy, and they think their wives are calling them to dinner? I think we could only add in the surmise that 
Helen is using what we would call some sort of post-hypnotic suggestion or something. She has clearly picked up some tricks in Egypt, the land of magic, and this will play in to a motif of women with magical powers or supernatural powers later in the Odyssey, and into the larger fascinating theme of women with power, all sorts of power, magical power, social power, and ultimately even in the island of the Phaeacians, astoundingly in this age, political power of a major sort. That does not mean that we have some sort of feminist epic on our hands. There are plenty of things that we will not be happy about, but it is by no means the situation that it is for women in the Iliad, where women are basically just helpless pawns, even the queens, let alone the poor slaves and the war prizes. At any rate, Menelaus talking about Helen trying to make the soldiers, if they're in there, betray themselves. In other words, you say that you repented all of this. No, you didn't repent at all. And by the way, <laughs> you had another guy after Paris, too. So one wonders that the narrator doesn't say a single word about whether Telemachus figured out that he's hearing a lot here, more than about his father. But at any rate, there's a lot that he has to learn about the complexities of relationships between men and women. Then as now, it is totally, there are places in the Odyssey that are still very much Bronze Age, elements of culture and social values that are very different from ours, but there is so much that is universally human, and some of this marital interaction stuff is very modern-seeming. At any rate, Menelaus does tell Telemachus, I do know where your dad is, and I know because I consulted with Proteus, the old man of the sea. And we get speaking of magic and the supernatural, we get one of many anecdotes about the supernatural in the Odyssey. Proteus is a character who is what the folklorists call a shapeshifter. He has the magical means of altering his appearance. He can also foretell the future and things at a distance, but you have to catch him and force him, and he will change shape. And the way you catch him is by grabbing hold of him and refusing to let go, and he will turn into all sorts of things, a snake, even into fire. Just, it's all illusion, just keep hold of him, and eventually he will relent and do your bidding. This is a remarkably widespread motif. There are English-Scottish ballads where the same thing occurs. And Menelaus, who needs to learn how to get wind for his sails in Egypt, does indeed capture Proteus, and Proteus does tell him how to get back home again. But 
adds in a few perks as well. The first perk he adds is about Menelaus himself. He tells Menelaus his own fate. You, Menelaus, will not die. Menelaus is going to be immortal. Why? Because he's married to Helen. Maybe, we, maybe this implies that, well, there's one good reason to stay married uh, to her. You're married to Helen, and Helen is of divine parentage, half-divine parentage. This is a very famous story told elsewhere in Greek mythology, and the poet Yeats in the 20th century has a famous poem called No Second Troy that dramatizes the moment. Zeus, the king of the gods, descends upon a mortal woman named Leda in the form of a swan. And, mythology being what it is, don't ask, Leda gets pregnant from this union and lays eggs. What happens to you when you are impregnated by a supernatural swan? As I say, don't ask, it's mythology. And, out of one of those eggs, hatches Helen and Clytemnestra as sisters in the egg, so to speak. Clytemnestra, the wife of Agamemnon, that killed him with her lover Aegisthus. But because Helen has quasi-divine parentage, Menelaus, through no virtue of his own except lucky marriage, will be immortal. The theme of immortality is an important one in the Odyssey. We will see in the underworld. And Proteus also knows where everybody else is and has told Menelaus, oh, Odysseus has been caught by another supernatural character, the nymph Calypso, who holds him on her island for seven years, the beginning of an eighth. And next time, this is where we will go. We will finally see our hero Odysseus, who has been languishing for seven to eight years with the sea nymph Calypso and finally has to be rescued from her because she is so powerful by Hermes, the messenger of the gods. And we will take up there, leaving Telemachus for a while and follow the adventures of our wonderful comic trickster hero Odysseus next time. Stay tuned.